Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kapesh Kapadia, CEO and founder of Deserve, a mobile-first credit card platform that's raised $150 million in funding. Kapesh, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brad. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so let's begin with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So I grew up in a city called Mumbai, which used to be called Bombay. It's the largest city in India with over 20 million people. You know, I grew up in educated sort of middle-class household where you're expected to become an engineer or a doctor when you grow up, if you're smart. So that's the path I chose. I did my undergraduate in mechanical engineering and industrial engineering. And, you know, you were told to, you know, study hard, play hard and, you know, and do something with your life. So that's my background. I have a younger brother who is also in business. And my dad was a stockbroker. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? 22. What was that like for you? A 22-year-old Kalpesh flying on the plane from India to the U.S. What was going through your head? Well, that was not the first time I had left India. So I had spent a few months in Hong Kong, a few months in Singapore. So I kind of had this ambition to come to U.S. Actually, believe it or not, when I was growing up in 1980s, India had a strong ties with Russia. And we set our first cosmonaut to space in early 80s and i became a member of russian library and you know doing russian math and you know and i i thought america was this evil power but as i grew older i realized that you know this is where i want to be so i changed i pivoted from russia to come to america to study <laughs> probably turned out to be a good decision <laughs> yes yes it did and where'd you go first did you go straight to silicon valley in san francisco or did you go somewhere else first no, so first five years, I was on the East Coast. I did my master's in industrial engineering and operational research in New Jersey at NJIT. Then I worked for a year and then did my MBA at uh, Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And then I worked in New York at Bear Stearns. And then I came over to California to work at an investment bank called Robertson Stevens in 1999 at the height of the first internet boom. What was that like? For listeners who you know, weren't really active in business then, what was that internet boom like from your perspective? I think it was crazy. Every week we would have a IPO party or a few IPO parties. So people would have, you know, calendars and maps and, you know, it was just a one giant party and the valuations were very, very high. I remember I bought my first talk in Netscape after it went public and it did very well, and Sun Microsystem and others. And then I started shorting stocks, and I shorted Yahoo, AOL, and Priceline in uh, 99. And I got my face ripped off because Yahoo was added to S&P 500 and, you know, doubled in a week. <laughs> so well, my entire paycheck would go to pay margin call. So that's what it was like. and. 
I think in March 2000, everything peaked, right? So I kind of caught the last sort of few months of party, if you will. A few other questions we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is, what CEO and founder do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? I think Phil Knight from Nike. I just recently watched the movie Air. I don't know if you had a chance to catch it about Michael Jordan and Air. Yeah, it's so good. And I think Ben Affleck plays him so well in the movie and, you know, obviously uh, Matt Damon and, and others. But uh, resiliency, you know, tenacity, and never give up that spirit I like about him. What about books? And the way we like to frame this is we, we call it a quake book. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It changes how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind? Yeah, it's a short book called Art of Thinking Clearly by Ralph DeValley. And my second would be Shoe Dog, of course, about Phil Knight. So Art of Thinking Clearly is a book about 100 cognitive biases that we have as human beings and how to watch out for them and correct for them. And it's each chapter is three to four minutes long. So it's not a long book, 100 chapters. I listen to them on Audible. So that's a book I have had greatest impact. And every time I'm making a cognitive error, I go back and, and check myself. Am I missing something here? Nice. Or do I have that. a bias? This is one of the best books ever. Amazing. I'll have to check that out. That's, I've not heard of that book and I haven't read it yet, obviously. So I'll have to add that to Amazon card here after the interview. Now let's switch gears and let's dive into the company. So can you just paint a picture for us at a, at a very high level? What does Deserve do? The Deserve is one of the most modern credit card platforms. And we describe ourselves as the Instagram to the Kodak generation of the industry. So we are digital first. We are API driven. And we are in the cloud, in the back end. So think of it as a modern infrastructure for credit card. Credit cards serve three unique and distinct functions in one. Payments, rewards, and loans. And they haven't been disrupted for a variety of reasons. The infrastructure that 99% of the credit card runs today are built in 1990s, or 80s even. COBOL, mainframe, batch processing, right? Even the largest issuers like Chase run on that. Apple Card was the first card which showed what a modern experience could look like. And Apple Card is really disrupting the industry. And we are kind of the Apple Card for everyone else. So mobile first, digital first. We believe that card is a software and a digital entity, not a plastic or metal card. Once you untether the software or card number from plastic, and, and metal, you can have a lot of possibilities around data moving, rewards, underwriting, managing your card, adding it to wallets, and all sorts of things, right? So think of it as where, you know, I, it's a cliche to describe this, but Steve Jobs said, if you take get rid of the keyboard on the phone, like BlackBerry, once you have a big piece of glass, you can do a lot more, right? When you get rid of the plastic, you can do a lot more with the card. Why do you think the industry has been slow to change? You know, why is it still running on infrastructure from the 80s and the 90s? Yeah, so when you look at the general managers or product owners of the card business in banks, because it's dominated by large banks, right? Uh, the Chase, the cities, the capital ones of the world, 
they look at card as a interest rate and fee product and revenue product. You know, it's Chase reported today, City reported today, right? And the numbers are stupendous. And it's all, you know, at least in the case of City, it was card related. In case of American Express, it's all card related, right? So it's a very profitable business for them because they look at it as a fee generating and uh, interest generating business. So they don't feel the pressure to innovate unless someone else coming in and, and taking share away from them. Mm-hmm. Consumers are demanding from all other types of apps outside of credit cards, like you know, uh, Uber for taxi, or DoorDash for food delivery, or you know, any of the other apps that you can think of. Have every industry has adopted and embraced technology and mobile and APIs and and cloud much faster than the financial services industry. It's kind of the melting glaciers, it's going to take a while. You know, up until two or three years ago, the likes of McKinsey's and BCG's would talk about digital transformation. You know, they're not talking about large language models or, you know, APIs or, you know, just banks are still behind, if you will. And I read the statistics that by 2025, 75% of world's COBOL programmers are either going to be retired or dead. So you got this Y2K type problem in the making. People are not talking about it. Why do you think that is? Why would no one be talking about this? And how do you change that? Or is that a conversation that you're actively trying to drive and you know, get the world to see that we have a, another you know, potential disaster or major issue coming? I think there has been some articles in popular press, but they believe that, you know, this is going to be fine. You know, we will modernize one piece at a time. We're still moving to the cloud, right? I mean, it's been 10 years. 15 years since cloud was launched, people are still moving. It's taking sort of the on-prem to cloud. It's not cloud native, right? The companies that are cloud native are the Facebooks of the world, the Googles of the world, right? Not the banks. Banks are just taking data from on-prem to cloud. So you don't get the full benefit of the cloud. But yeah, you're right that they're not talking about it. And it's like, nobody likes to talk about COBOLs. You know, it's not sexy. So... (laughs) Now, can you take me back to 2013 when the company was first being formed? What were those early conversations like with you and colleagues and investors? And what was it about this problem? You know, what did you observe in the market to say, yep, this is something that I want to dedicate the next 10 plus years to, to solving? Yeah, so I think the idea was born out of my personal problem. It's what I call founder product fit. I came here as a student at trouble getting access to loans and credit, you know, that things that you as an American take it for granted. And I thought that just because one lacks social security numbers or credit scores doesn't mean they don't exist in the system, right? And there is has to be a better way to underwrite them. So we developed something called a self-score, which is a highly predictive version of a FICO score eventually. So it had high correlation to your eventual FICO score. And it took into account your ability to pay, willingness to pay, you know, your ability to hold on to a good job, things of that sort. So we did this alternative data, you know, your bank account connection, where we can see your ins and outs from your bank account, how you use your bank account also is indicative of how you use credit 
right? If you have too many overdrafts, too many mispayments, you're probably going to have this habit. So we built this score, and then we were trying to commercialize the score. And everyone we went to said, hey, here's the audience, some people like me. Now you look at the top four software CEOs in the world are run by students who came here from India, top four software companies, Microsoft, Alphabet, Adobe, and IBM. So you are acquiring this tomorrow's super prime customers today because they lack these markers of credit. You can acquire them for cheap and then you can grow with them, right? Banks loved the idea, but nobody wanted to be first. You know, people are like, oh, it's this niche market. And, you know, what about this regulation? And what about this compliance? And what about this other thing? So we said, you know what? Screw it. We are going to do it on our own. We're going to launch our own credit card and, and commercialize our score. So that's how the company was born. How long were you doing that? We had a great success up until uh, Trump got elected. We were on a thousand different colleges in the U.S., customers from 100 different countries, as little as Nepal and Burkina Faso, and as large as China and India. So we made a name for ourselves. We were the go-to card for students coming here from all over the world. And then Trump got elected and people started questioning the immigration. He's going to shut the borders to Chinese and to Middle Easterns and all these things, right? And Indians and and we said, okay, the problem exists in college students in the U.S. as well. It's not just unique to people who come fresh off the board, right? So we expanded the audience to 18 to 29, you know, college students and young professionals. And that went very well. We launched Deserve EDU card and Deserve Pro card. And around 2018, a couple of firms came to acquire us. And we decided to go it alone and... Sally May, which is one of the largest student, the largest student lender, became an investor in the company and became a partner of Deserve. And we helped them launch three different credit card products, uh, one for students, one for recent graduates, and one for parents. And the value proposition was around paying off your student loans faster. You just saw today President Biden forgive $38 billion in student loans, right? Once you've been paying for 20 years, 25 years. That's a big stimulus for people. So that is a, a key value prop for the product. So that's where the company sort of pivoted from direct-to-consumer to building card infrastructure for others. What was it like making that pivot? Was that a, a painful pivot? Oh, very painful. Because, you know, you have sort of set up the company in one, one way where you're doing customer acquisition and direct-to-consumer marketing and, you know, you, a credit underwriting versus doing it for others where you're just providing product and technology infrastructure and they determine, you know, how to market the product. They determine how to underwrite the product. So it was a big change. Is the company better off today because of that pivot, do you think? Or just part of you wish that it just would have remained a direct-to-consumer play? Yeah, it is better off for sure. Because it's hard to compete with the likes of Chase at American Express. What you would be doing is, you know, helping people like myself build good credit history and lose them to Chase as a customer, right? So you're just creating a funnel for Chase. And, uh, you know, this is a more defensible business model. So we are better off as a company. 
is it as fun? What I've spoken about with other founders in the past, and they've done you know both businesses, B2C and B2B, they say that B2C is a bit more fun. Do you feel that way or do you disagree? Yeah, by nature, right? One In one instance, you are behind the scene and it's a very different sales motion, very different marketing. And other is sort of, you see results every day, ins and outs, right? Whereas this is a long sales cycle and, you know, you seed a lot of efforts and see which ones sort of pan out, right? Versus consumer, you, you run some campaigns, you buy, buy some uh, list from uh, credit bureaus and you send them invitation to apply. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. You can have creative marketing messages around the card and, you know, why one should get it. And, you know, we used to uh, have a tagline that why get discovered when you deserve a MasterCard, right? <laughs> but Discover is one large player in this space. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Can you tell us about growth and just you know, give us some details there so we can understand the scale that you're operating at today? Yeah, so I'll just keep it high level where you know we pretty much doubled from 2019 to 2020 to 2021 to 2022. And you know we have hundreds of thousands of cards, hundreds of millions of dollars in spend on the platform per month. What do you attribute to that success and that growth? Any founder listening in is thinking, wow, that sounds nice. I'd like to see that kind of growth. What do you think you've gotten right? Uh, what we got right was in B2B, you need one of your customers to scale, right? And that happened you know, for us. And fortunately and unfortunately, it happened in the crypto space. So when crypto was hot, people loved their rewards in, in uh, Bitcoin. So that was one of the impetus for our growth. We have customers in the mortgage space, in the stock trading space, right? So it's just that uh, you sort of have a customer that scales quickly and, you know, you sort of ride the wave with that customer. And let's talk about the domain. So you own deserve.com. That's obviously a hot domain. What's the backstory behind that? What I've found with a lot of companies with you know, these very... Uh, very good quality domains. There's always a story. Is there a story there? Of course there is. So when we were rebranding from Self-Score, which we used to be called before, to Deserve, we hired an agency to do rebranding and we zeroed in on Deserve as a name. But Self-Score was how you get the card, right? You get a score and you get the card. And Deserve was why you deserve this card, right? So from how to why. And then we did a scan of trademarks and things of that sort and website. And, and what we found out was that there was a, a lady in Taliban, which uh, she used to run, or she still does, Design Services Inc., a furniture and architectural design shop. And she had deserve.com. So as a domain. I, in 99, I dabbled into trading domain names. You know, and internet was art, .com was art, people were buying all sorts of domain names, right? So I had some connections in the space. I reached out to one of them and said, hey, can you help me acquire this domain name for cheap? Because if I directly contact her, 
she's going to want some crazy price. So he asked me, you know, uh, how much are you willing to pay? I said, you know, call it $25,000. So, okay, let me see what I can do. And he reached out to her and along the old, she agreed. She asked for three months to transition all the activity, all the email and everything else from the website and everything else from deserve.com. He said, you know what, we'll give you 5000 more to, to just transition it in a week. She did, she did that. And then my broker, who was buying the name from me, he asked me if, if he can sell it for $250,000. And I'm like, no, we want to use it. He said, I did exact same thing where a real estate leasing company had a name, release.com. I bought it from them and sold it to release software and made quarter million dollars. So that's the backstory on, on the domain. <laughs> nice. I always love hearing those. Now, I know you talked about the pivot there in, in 2018 and the pain that came there. Are there any other near-death experiences that you've had throughout the company's history where it just got really tough and, and you weren't sure if the company was going to make it through? Oh, it just happened end of last year. As I mentioned, we are in the cryptos. We were powering the crypto credit card, BlockFi. And on, in the FTX debacle, BlockFi got caught up and they filed for bankruptcy. And we had number of cards, you know, that were live in the market. We had to do some damage control. So I'm still dealing with it, believe it or not. <laughs> but we are at the tail end of that pain. And do you feel like a, a seasoned crisis manager now? Like when with these crises hit, do you have like a plan? Are you able to manage it well? Or what's it like for you when you, know, you face these types of challenges? It's very stressful. It's very stressful as a founder. I'll be honest with you. It's fun when it's going great. It's not fun when it's not going great. But you just have to take it, you know, no guts, no glory, right? So <laughs> I give this talk to my college uh, students in my alma mater uh, at Carnegie Mellon. And I have a slide deck which talks about, you know, entrepreneurship class, talks about starting a company. It's like giving a birth to a child. And there are so, so many parallels to that, right? It's like uh, I start with the first slide where you say ideas are like the sperms of the mind, millions floating around and only few of them fertilize. And the second slide is about you can't produce a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. That's a quote from Warren Buffett, right? It just takes time. You have to go through it. And then I talk about sort of Tuckman model, forming, storming, norming, performing, right? And how you build the teams and, you know, I think Michael Jordan said it once, right? He's one of my favorite sports personalities. The talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence wins championship. So, yeah, I think there, the personal qualities that you need in an entrepreneur is persistence and resilience. And persistence and resilience only come from having been given a chance to work through difficult problems, Right. Life doesn't get easier or more forgiving. We just get stronger and more resilient. I love that. Now, let's talk a little bit about funding. So as I mentioned there in the intro, there's been $150 million raised so far. I know there's also a much larger amount that's been raised in debt. And I also saw on the website that you know you have some really amazing investors. So you mentioned Sally May there. You also have MasterCard. You have Visa. You have Goldman Sachs. 
So I'd love to talk about that specifically. How did you go about landing such amazing strategic partners and strategic investors like that? Yeah, so I talked about Sally May, right? And then Goldman Sachs was entering the credit card space with Apple Card, right? And they believed that there is room for more players to modernize the infrastructure and offer card as a service. And they have investment arms and they reached out to us and uh, they became our investor at the end of 2019. And then we had a full sort of pipeline and BD strategy to go after and, you know, with co-brand deals and with, you know, bank deals like Sally May. And then COVID hit in March 2020, right? And world kind of shut down for an extended period of time. So we had raised capital and we were like, okay, let's do something strategic because nobody is actually building new credit card programs because they don't know when the world will open. They don't want to launch products, you know, in the middle of pandemic, right? So we went and built technology partnership with MasterCard, uh, with Visa, and that led to both of them investing in the company at the same time, which is very rare for both these players because they both want something that you know, shouldn't give the other one, right? So we remained sort of the Switzerland, the neutral party here, and we landed them as investors. And Ally Bank, which has a venture arm called Ally Ventures, they also invested in at the same time. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this past 10 or 11 years? What have I learned? I think you need to be a great storyteller. You need to back it up with numbers. You need to raise more than you need because you'll need more <laughs> than you expect. Those are some of the things that I need to execute. Storytelling is something that we hear a lot from founders and, and from investors when I ask them you know, about the skills that they look for. Did that come naturally for you? Are you uh, naturally good storyteller or has that been a skill that you've had to really nurture and improve over the course of your career? I like to believe I'm a good storyteller. What do you think? Last half an hour. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. But you have to refine it. You have to refine it. You have to constantly work on it. And I read a lot. I read lots of all sorts of subjects, right? I mean, now I'm hooked on to, I'm sure everyone else is, to chat GPT. It's just amazing how much information is out there and you know, how quickly you have access to all the information. Do you view ChatGPT or generative AI is going to have an impact on Deserve It All in a, in a positive or negative way? Like, is that on your radar of future products or, or things to, to bake into the product? Yes, I think these models require data. And if you feed structured unstructured data, you can build delinquency models, you can build transaction fraud models, you can build, you know, propensity models, you know. So clearly, you know, if you take data from customer service call recording, you can, you know, build models on top of that, right? So in all sorts of ways, you can make your products smarter with these LLM and generative AI. And moving into the, the final couple of questions for you, Based on your journey so far, if you were starting the company again today from scratch, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? Don't be in lending business because it's hard. And it goes back to my earlier point as banks view this as a lending product. And it is a lending, like all fintech startups, you know, eventually, you know, one way or the other are lending. And if you can avoid that and become more and more 
software product. You get higher valuation, less hicks, less regulation, less compliance, right? So I don't know if it's accurate, but I, you know, I think I read online that Goldman is trying to end the partnership with Apple. And, you know, I'm a big Apple user. I love my Apple card. I've been using it now for like a year and just, uh, I love the product. It's, and it's so great. Why do you think that partnership is going to end? Or is that not even accurate? As I'm based on like, I think I read an article mentioning something like that, but that could be inaccurate. I read it too in the Wall Street Journal, in, in Bloomberg, in American Bankers, number of articles. I think it's public knowledge that, uh, you know, consumer's strategy is hard. You need to be in there for 10 years before you see profits, right? Mm-hmm. And many of other divisions that are making money head over fist, you sort of have to justify why you are in this business, which is low ROE, comes with credit losses, right? And and it is a scale business. So a number of things that sort of, it, while it's sexy, right? You know, when you look at Apple launched iPhone on AT&T, I still remember standing in line on day one. Steve Jobs came into the store to, you know, greet everyone. Since that day, AT&T stock has gone down over the last 15, 16 years, right? Because Apple captured all the profits. They still capture 120% of the industry's profit. So many of these large brands, there is a sort of a buyer's remorse where you, you know, got, you agreed to become a partner like Amazon or Apple. Do you think they let you make money? So there are a variety of reasons for that. Hmm. Interesting. Now, final question here, since we're almost up on time, and I know it's an end of day on Friday, so I won't hold you, keep you over here. Last question is about the vision going forward. So can you just paint a picture for us? What do you want Deserve to look like three to five years from today? I want Deserve to be the best credit card infrastructure company that is expanding globally, you know, and, and providing superior consumer experience and better partner experience that allows for them to accounts, keep the car top of wallet, reduce the cost to service. Amazing. I love the vision. Well, I think that's all we're going to have time for today. Before we wrap, if any founder listening in wants to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision and, and keep building up this company, where should they go? Oh, they can go to deserve.com or all our sort of social media presence. Are you active on social as well? Are you posting on Twitter or LinkedIn or anything? Or is it more just the, the company updates there? I, I post on LinkedIn. I post on Twitter. I'll make sure to link to those in the, in the show notes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of fun. It was fun learning from you. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Brad. All right. Take care. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 